0: Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is available now. You can order it on Amazon if you want to have it, or you could get it on audiobook couldn't you, and listen to the bloody thing. Also, come see me on my Rebirth tour. I'm in Coventry on the 8th of November. I'm in Leicester on the 13th of November and Stoke on the 14th of November. I changed a lot of these dates, so there are tickets available because uh, I moved it from some other occasion because I had to go to America to promote that book. Go to russellbrand.com and get tickets. Come see me. It's a great show. You'll have a, a real laugh. Finally, if you like this show, please subscribe to it and review it Go back and listen to some of the old ones. There's some absolutely terrific stuff on here, whether it's Al Gore, Naomi Klein, Frankie Boyle, Simon Amstel, or last week, well, a personal favourite of mine, Hindi Andrews, with some real radical, challenging ideas. And this is another classic episode coming right up now. And when you do review it, just five stars, please. People are sensitive, people are kind, people are going to die. So be bloody nice. Five stars only. Time now for Under the Skin. You are listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Today I'll be speaking to Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert Sheldrake is a biologist who's been called the most controversial scientist on Earth. His research strongly challenges the paradigms of conventional science, and he is the author of multiple scientific papers and 10 science books, many of which have been bestsellers worldwide, which develop his hypotheses that traditional science has difficulty explaining, such as his popular theory, morphic resonance. He lives in London with his wife, Jill, and they have two sons. His latest book, Science and Spiritual Practice, is out now. I'm holding a copy of it in my hands. I'm looking at Rupert Sheldrake, who's been... We've been in the studio a matter of minutes. You've challenged the setup of the studio in many ways, the positioning of the microphone, the positioning of the camera. It seems to me that you're a man who continually flies in the face of convention. Have you always been like this,
1: Rupert? Um... Well, not completely, no, but I have always had a kind of contrarian streak, I suppose.
0: How were your, was your, your early experience, your early professional life, was conventional academia, is that right? You were like a Oxford researcher or a don? No, I was or were a were don you?
1: at Cambridge. A, I did a PhD at Cambridge and I was a don there, yes.
0: I, and a sort of, a, I suppose, a conventional biologist.
1: Well, I was doing unconventional science under the guise of a conventional academic appointment as a research fellow. So um, I was actually, when I was at Cambridge, I was trying to see how we could expand the frontiers of biology, go beyond the framework of thinking. But at that stage, I hadn't published my ideas on morphic resonance, and what I did was relatively within the limits of acceptable science.
0: It's interesting, the dogma and doctrine that exists within the scientific and academic communities and yours is an interview that I feel at the front of obligated to say that your controversy is that I think that people like on the sort of the uh, opposing side of the argument kind of regard you as like because I'm inter- very interested in spirituality, I'm very interested in science, but uh, what you've already said about challenging frameworks is where my particular academic interest lies. I know there's much mm. about convention that I have to learn, of course mm. I do, like most people, but I'm very interested in pushing frontiers and boundaries. But like the, the, some of the criticism... Oh, yeah, that's like... The, the, what you're accused of is like pseudoscience and stuff that's not backed up by proper evidence. And I feel like that if we had Neil deGrasse Tyson on, and I hope we do one day, or when I've had people... Had on a sort of a uh, the head of philosophy once from Oxford who's like a Christian theologian. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because once you're dealing with mysticism, which Christianity, you know, must be referred to as just to a degree. Mm. Like that the, there's a kind of there's a hierarchy and there's hegemony within those fields. Why are you controversial? What is it that you've said that makes people think of you as a phrase that I particularly hate and I'm sometimes offended by woo woo through through, banned Ted Talk. You've got a banned TED Talk, that elite club, which I think is somewhat admirable. Tell me like what your detractors say of you, if you don't mind.
1: Well, first I have to say why they think it's heretical. Mm. Um, what I'm doing fundamentally is challenging the materialist model of reality which science is based on, has been for more than 100 years, which is the doctrine that all matter unconscious. The whole universe is made of unconscious matter, um, which then leaves the problem of how come we are conscious. And that's called the hard problem. The, 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 most scientists assume that consciousness exists only in human brains and possibly in animal brains too. Um, You know, the liberal ones say maybe as far down as worms or something. But um, anyway, it's all only in brains. And the rest of the universe is unconscious, purposeless, going nowhere. Evolution is just a matter of blind chance. There's no God out there. Um, There's no spirit out there. There's no creativity out there. It's it's just chance. Um, And that because they believe our minds are nothing but our brains then anything that suggests the mind extends further than the brain must be pseudoscientific. So, for example, I've done a lot of research on telepathy um, where people, and indeed dogs, I wrote a whole book on dog, tele- animal telepathy called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, um, based on evidence that dogs can tell when their owners are coming home. Millions of people have had this experience. I've done experiments, and sure enough, at least some dogs really can know when... People come at random times in unfamiliar vehicles. Mm. We film it all. We have all this objective evidence. But the very clear, the very fact that I'm suggesting telepathy might be real mm. is something that provokes this kind of hysterical response that it must be woo-woo pseudoscience because my opponents believe it's impossible. So they don't think they need to look at the evidence. They think it's impossible, therefore this stuff must be fake or phony or fraudulent. Um, And what I do is start from the position that these things seem to happen. Millions of people with dogs have noticed their dogs or cats pick up their thoughts. Millions of people have had the experience of thinking of someone who then rings on the phone, telephone telepathy. Mm. I've done experiments that show it's not just chance, it's not just guessing. Um, so anyway,
0: these Wouldn't are the kinds... Say, I've got two things I'd like to say here because, you know, like, listen, me, I'm all about God and mm. consciousness And changing the world and a a model that expands beyond materialism. This is where my particular fascination lies. But wouldn't they say that those firstly, those examples about, you know, cats and dogs, they seem sort of somehow humdrum and everyday. They seem anecdotal. and, w- and wouldn't they say, uh, members of the mainstream scientific community, no, we've done tests around that, it's down to random chance, dogs don't know when their owners are coming home, we have can demonstrate this in scientific laboratory conditions, double-blind testing, etc. Isn't that what they would say?
1: No, no, they don't say that. Oh. Well, first of all, they say it's anecdotal, but... Yeah what i say to that is well if lots of people i have more than a thousand a uh, database i've got more than a thousand studies case studies of dogs that do this and 600 of cats well i would say the plural of anecdote is data if lots of people notice something then to say this is rubbish because lots of people say they've noticed it isn't the right starting point for right. science that's meant to be empirical and, and which means based on experience So my response to this is to say, okay, well, let's test it. Well, it wasn't that they'd done the tests and shown it didn't happen. No one had ever done a test before because they assume it's rubbish. So when I do the tests, then with the dogs, um, then it involves filming the dog, the place the dog waits, having people come at random times, come in unfamiliar vehicles. So there's no possibility that it's a routine response. They can't smell people from many miles away. They can't... Um, identify the sound of an unfamiliar taxi or other vehicle. Um, and these dogs still do it, and it's all on film. So I would say this is evidence for something which lots of people believe exist. And the reason that um, I concentrate a lot in a lot of my work on what I call the mysteries of everyday life, what you call humdrum, um, is precisely because these phenomena are classified by most scientists as Paranormal. Well, para means beyond. They're saying they're paranormal, which means they're sort of spooky or woo-woo. My point is they're not paranormal at all. They're normal everyday experiences for most people. What's paranormal is the claim that these things don't exist, a claim made without evidence on purely ideological grounds.
0: Near the beginning, Rupert, you said that the basic model of mainstream science is a materialistic one, that... Material that matter is not conscious, and consciousness is at some point in a way that we don't understand emerged from matter. What do you think is the motivation for the defense of dogma? Why is it so? Why is rationalism and materialism so rigorously defended and alternative views uh, so vehemently opposed? Well, it's kind of political. Uh, Originally, it was
1: political in the 19th century beginning of the 19th century, materialism was quite a small minority view. Um, Within biology, a lot of people were vitalists. They thought there was a life force or some life principle. It wasn't just matter. Organisms weren't just machines. Um, But the materialists wanted to believe that because they wanted a universe that's just matter because such a universe would have no God in it.
0: Why did they want that?
1: Because... Particularly in France, where atheism got going in a big way, much more than in England. The old regime that was overthrown in the French Revolution was very closely allied with the church, the Roman church. And they thought that to get rid of the king, you've got to get rid of the church too. And the best way to get rid of the power of the church was to say God doesn't exist. So the whole thing's a ridiculous sham and pretense. Mm. So in the French Revolution in 1793, they abolished the Catholic Church in France. They closed the monasteries. They guillotined tens of thousands of priests. And they proclaimed the cult of reason as the state religion. Notre Dame Cathedral was turned into a temple of reason. Mm. Now, in Russia, you had a similar massive growth of atheism in the late 19th century. The Bolsheviks, whose revolution occurred almost 100 years ago, um, 1917, um, wanted to get rid of religion because they thought religion supported the Tsar and, and the state, and they wanted to destroy this religious underpinning. So science was an ally for them in this militant atheism. And in Russia in the 1930s, they had about 5 million people belong to an organization called the League of the Militant Godless. That went round... That sounds like, terrifying. <laughs>
0: terrifying. Bit they like, are <laughs> the League of the Militant Godless. Don't mess with them guys.
1: <laughs> they went round trying to stamp out everything to do with religion in Russia, a bit like the Red Guards in China. And so atheism was essentially political in in the 19th century and for much of the 20th century. And many people who were atheists wanted materialist science... To back up their views, because it meant they could reject organised religion, particularly Christianity, uh, in favour of other ideologies.
0: So it was a necessary tool in challenging hegemony. That religion and the idea of God and man's relationship with God was tied up in power structures. Those power structures were corrupt and oppressive, needed to be overthrown. I mean, the, no one's saying the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution were bad things, necessary, but necessary revolutions. But In order to underwrite those revolutions, you had to attack the idea of God, which was the mainstay uh, of of the hegemony or the the basis of that power. Now, earlier you mentioned this idea within biology of vitalism, that in uh, in, uh, a hundred years ago in biology, the the idea that there was a sort of a super mechanical component, an element that couldn't be tracked, was present. I'm learning much about Vedic philosophy, where they talk about the uh, idea of Brahman, prana, atma. The idea that there are essential non-mechanical energies. Now, is this, what, what, is this connected to your idea of morphic resonance? How does it relate to it when you talk about, well, what do you mean by morphic resonance? What do you mean by non-mechanical energy? Even though it wasn't you that said that, it was me.
1: Well, morphic resonance is the idea that there's a kind of memory in nature. You see, contemporary science, one of the dogmas which was established in the 17th century at the scientific revolution, is the idea that nature is governed by fixed laws. And the idea was in the 17th century, God is the maker and ruler of the universe, and God is eternal, so God's laws are eternal. And then um, the idea was that everything in nature had to follow these laws because God is omnipotent, so God was the universal law enforcement agency. That was the metaphor. Yes. Um, So... um, it was a theological conception and they didn't have the idea of evolution then and it's very anthropocentric metaphor the idea of the universe that nature is governed by laws I and mean, only humans have laws yes so when you think about it it's not a very appropriate metaphor to start with
0: no there are just patterns and i like this idea of metaphor and it's uh, 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 the fact that we are necessarily dealing with metaphor when we're dealing with science Uh, that even the mechanistic model was contrived at a time when industry and mechanization was happening in human culture so it would have been an attractive model an accessible Mm -hmm. model when mechanization was happening socially oh humans are a bit like a machine nature's a bit like a machine that was in the language it was in the ether Mm. it became an appropriate metaphor for understanding is that correct
1: It is, yes. So they thought of nature as a kind of mechanical system made up of unconscious matter based on forces that work by pushing and pulling, uh, mechanical forces. Um, And the idea that the laws were fixed at the beginning, uh, you see, was it made sense when they thought the universe didn't basically change. But when the idea of evolution came along, first in biology with Darwin in 1859... But then with the Big Bang theory in the whole of nature, as late as 1966, we got a radically evolutionary cosmology. If everything's evolving, then why not the laws of nature? And in fact, laws of nature, as I've said, isn't a very good metaphor. Uh, Why not habits? Why Mm -hmm. can't the universe have regularities that are habits? And then there's a kind of memory in nature that sustains them, instead of some kind of external transcendent mind with fixed laws in it, which is the eternal uh, eternal God idea. Uh, um, I've nothing against God, but I've got a lot against the idea of God making laws of nature that are totally fixed.
0: Yes, it's almost like the requirement for fixed laws is a, a requirement in order to conduct study. If there are no fixed laws, it's impossible to conduct study. So you need fixed laws. There must be fixed laws. But in a way, it doesn't make sense. If you're moving through limitless space, which is continually evolving, it's more likely that there are patterns that seem like laws when observed from a particular perspective, but are going to be subject to the continual evolution and change that all other phenomena appear to be subjected to.
1: Absolutely. It puts it very well. And you see things that have been going on a very long time, like the crystallisation of salt or the... Uh, formation of hydrogen atoms, are such deep habits, they behave as if they're changeless. But when you look at new things, new forms of learning, new forms of behavior, new chemical compounds, then you see the habits build up, and the evidence for morphic resonance comes from looking at new phenomena and seeing new habits build up. For example, if you crystallize a new compound, a new chemical compound, for the first time, it takes months or even years before crystals form, but then once you've got it going, all around the world they form more easily. If you train rats to learn a new trick in London, then rats all around the world learn the same thing quicker according to actual evidence. Is,
0: that, is this disputed evidence or is that stuff that's like we're down with that?
1: Well, the evidence was done years ago at Harvard and in Edinburgh and Melbourne universities. No one's disputed the evidence. The disputation is about how you interpret it. Mm. Um, And most people thought at the time, uh, well, this just shows some weird effect that we don't fully understand, so let's forget about it. Um, I think the evidence for morphic resonance, you see, there's a lot of phenomena already there um, that people agree about fit with morphic resonance. For example, IQ scores have gone up more than 30% since IQ tests were invented in 1918. Uh, I predicted this would happen myself, not in 1918, obviously, but in the 1980s, um, because the tests have remained more or less the same. Millions of people have done them. Millions of people have solved these problems. It should be getting easier to do the tests. Mm. Those scores would be going up, the average scores, not because people are getting smarter. There's no independent evidence they're getting smarter. Uh, But the scores are going up because... So many people have already done the test.
0: I see. It's like there's a shared eye cloud of consciousness that we're all uploading our results into, that we all have access to, access to. That consciousness is not wholly housed in the brain, but consciousness has some other component. That's one aspect of the theory of morphic resonance, is it? It is.
1: It's a kind of collective memory. Mm. And that idea already existed in the, the psychologist Jung yes. with his idea of the collective unconscious. Um, had the idea that we all tap into a kind of collective memory. But he was thinking just in terms of human psychology, and I'm saying that's the way that all nature works, it's not just
0: us. When Jung talks of this, he's saying because of patterns in dreams, that that people dream in a, a kind of consistent language in certain cases, that motifs appear across cases, across continents that have a continuum to them. Joseph Campbell's work in comparative mythology suggests that indigenous cultures f- produce patterns within their myths that are identifiable, that that uh, an African myth or an Icelandic myth can have templates that are comparable, which suggests that consciousness communicates or at least has some essential quality that is not determined by material reality or geography, but has some other form of connection. I mean my I personally don't have a problem with this idea because I see that the sensory realm is accessible by the instruments we have. If we didn't have a sense of smell, I wouldn't be able to understand conceptually what you meant by a sense of smell. I know that different animals have different ranges of hearing, have different ranges of sight, so it seems to me possible that energy can communicate and travel in means too subtle for my limited instruments to ascertain and Mm. receive. So for me, it's never been a problem, (coughs) but it is necessarily difficult to demonstrate when it's transferred back into the language of mechanics, material and identifiable evidence, isn't it?
1: Well, I mean, not in principle. I mean, you can do experiments to test this on chemicals, on crystals, on rats, on humans. So in principle, you can test this with the scientific method. I mean, I'm totally pro the scientific method. I spend a lot of my life doing experiments. Um, So... um, in principle, there's no reason you can't test it. And in fact, it has been tested. Um, it's just an unfamiliar idea for most Westerners. Now, you're studying Eastern philosophy. And in Eastern philosophy, the idea of a memory in nature is completely standard. Uh, you know, I lived in India for seven years. I worked in an agricultural institute there. Um, and the so I, I sort of got fairly familiar with Indian philosophy. I wasn't much influenced by it. I had this idea before I went there. But when I talked about this idea in Cambridge on high table of my college, Clare College, you know, there were looks of blank incomprehension or in the tea room of the biochemistry department where I worked. Um, when I got to India, I would ex- explain this idea to Indian friends and colleagues, even people I met on trains. and You sound like a pest. <laughs> they, well, they, uh, they asked me first. I didn't... You know, in India, you if you sit that, on a train, really? uh, you know they say, "What is your name? Uh, uh, where are you from?" Etc. And then give uh, me some of your theories. Yes, about three questions <laughs> in. You know, after "What is your salary?", uh, they they ask you, "What is your view of the world?" So, <laughs> so I, I they really want to. Say, so I explained this, and, and the general response I got from Indian friends, colleagues, and even strangers was. Well, there is nothing new in this idea. Ancient rishis have said this thousands of years ago. How know. is it
0: termed? What's the, what's the, how, how is that vedically understood, the idea that there is a, a memory in nature?
1: Well, it's basically part of the philosophy of karma, which in, in its limited form is about reincarnation, carrying over memories from one life to another. Mm. But in its more general form um, can be seen as a theory of cosmic memory. And in some forms of Buddhist and Hindu philosophy, they have this idea of a cosmic memory. Mm. The Theosophists took this up with their idea of the Akashic records, which is a kind of cosmic memory bank. Um, so I didn't know all that when I thought of these ideas in Cambridge. I, I came to them through thinking about biology and plants, and you know, it was coming. How
0: did you come to it?
1: Well, I was working on plants. How do plants grow? Plant morphogenesis, the development of form. Um, How does a leaf become a leaf? How does a rose flower become a rose flower? Why is an oak leaf different from an ash leaf? Um, I worked out, I was working on the plant hormone auxin. It's a plant, a hormone that makes cells grow and makes roots form and makes wood cells form. And I worked out how it was made and how it was transported around the plant. But the thing is it's transported round all plants in a similar way and it's made in a similar way in all plants and yet they have different shapes. And so everyone was trying to say well, we can explain form in terms of chemicals and this was the main chemical everyone thought was the important influence. But I realized, actually, it won't explain it. They've all got the same one. It's it's like trying to explain what goes on in different shops and factories and schools because they all have the same kind of money. it's, it's It's something that's part of the system. Take it away and the system would collapse. But it doesn't explain why they're different or why they have that form. And an idea that came up in the 1920s in developmental biology was the idea of morphogenetic fields, fields that shape form. I got interests in this, but then I realized these fields have to be inherited somehow. They can't be inherited through genes, which only code for proteins. They had to be inherited by some kind of direct link. And then I realized if it was a kind of memory across time, a great deal of biology would make sense, not just biology, but a lot of nature. So I had this kind of flash of insight and for three or four days I was in kind of manic state when I first came up with the idea of morphic resonance because more and more things made sense and then I got worried you know it's a kind of theory of everything and you know I ought to be worried about this so I didn't publish it for another eight years I thought I've really got to think about this hard and look at the evidence and when I finally worked through a long process it made It really did make sense after thinking it through, and that's when I published my first book, A New Science of Life.
0: The idea being that there is a memory that is beyond material that is travelling through time. Can you give us some examples of that?
1: Well, the one example would be the the, uh, thing I mentioned with rats, if animals learn a new trick. Then rats, similar rats, faced with the same trick somewhere else, on the basis of similarity resonate with those rats before. Morphic resonance is about similarity in patterns of vibration or patterns of activity. Um, So, um, what I'm suggesting is there's a kind of resonance across time Mm. that uh, just goes across time without falling off with time and across space. I mean, this is a difficult idea perhaps, but. Uh, the alternative is laws of nature that are outside time and space altogether, and yet yes. somehow present everywhere. It's not as if the conventional alternative is absolutely mind-boggling. Mind, the mind-boggling factor free. It's just we're used to it.
0: That's right. You're quite right that to suggest there are objective laws that exist outside time that is an unusual. And as you've said already, it's uh, it's analogous to the idea of God anyway, saying yes. that there is an absolute template. A sort, of an, uh, a sort of a monolith of mm. truth that stands beyond the rule. That's, in a sense, as a paradigm, that is the same as saying God. There's these yes. rules that are in charge.
1: Except for materialist scientists, the rules are supposed to have come about spontaneously by themselves. Uh, they're like things in a mind, but they say there is no mind. So they're completely paradoxical. To have laws that are immaterial, that are rational, that have no material being, and yet no non-material substrate is an incoherent belief, and yet that's what most scientists
0: believe. How... And why does, I mean, a more sort of obvious example I thought of is that, you know, that famous example of the four-minute mile as in the film Chariots of Fire, that, you know, that no one can break the four-minute mile. If someone breaks the four-minute mile, then people break the four-minute mile. It's like a very public, identifiable idea that once it's identified that something is achievable, it becomes achievable, it becomes sanctioned, accessible somehow. How, what I'm interested in, Rupert, Is how dogma behaves and how heresy is regarded and controlled. Now, one of the things I enjoyed in your let's call it um, like I I like to have a band TED talk. It's a cool thing, I think. Like that in your band uh, TED talk is uh, when you were talking about how uh, mainstream science protects its uh, dogmas through denial of variation. For example, what's the, ex- uh, the speed of light? Yeah, well, I gave an example
1: of the speed of light that between... I, I got interested in this because the idea that the speed of light is totally constant and all the constants are constant is part of the fixed law dogma. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just check out I had no particular... I don't work on physical constants, so it wasn't a particular thing where I had a personal interest, but I just thought I'd look at the data. And when I did, I was amazed to find it varied quite a lot between 1928 and 1950 or so. The speed of light dropped by 20 kilometers per second all around the world, and then it went up again. And... They, they were all claiming that they're, they have little error bars on the graph, so they're showing very small errors, that it, the error was like plus or minus 0.1 of a kilometre per second, and yet there was 20 kilometres per second difference. And I just couldn't understand what was going on, so I went to see the head of the National Physics Laboratory at Teddington, um, the man in charge of measuring constants, and I asked him, and and he said, well...
0: If he really was constant, you don't even need him. <laughs> so you're out of the job, mate. It's always the same. Oh, blast! <laughs> so he said, um, well, um, he said,
1: I know it's a very embarrassing incident in the history of our science. And I said, well, does that mean that everyone was fudging their results uh, in, 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 during the whole of that period all around the world to get the expected result? He said, we don't like to use the word fudging. He said, and I said, well, what do you call it? And he said, we prefer to call it intellectual phase locking. <laughs> so, so anyway, they, then then it went up again. And then they, to resolve this problem, they just defined it. They, by fiat, they, they invented the speed of light, they, the closest value. And they said, that's it. From now on, it's defined. And then they defined the meter in terms of the speed of light um, so that, Even if the speed of light did change, you'd never notice, because the meter would change in length at the same time. Brilliant. The the
0: unit of (laughs) measurement would also alter. Yes. I'm reminded of the Melville quote, all human science but passing fables. Look, uh, As we learn more, everything that we think of as being absolute will necessarily evolve, because we are only looking at a small portion of all of the available evidence what do uh, revelations in quantum physics in your opinion mean about the nature of consciousness i know that the double slit theory is an area that uh, people are, like myself who are of a spiritual bent uh, leap all over as evidence that consciousness uh, impacts uh, mat- matter and the behavior uh, of waves and particles and uh, physicists say no 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 you're misinterpreting this and you're drawing conclusions that are erroneous but what does it tell us without us being too sort of quick to leap on our um you know our chariots of fire and start blasting out the silver trumpets and proclaiming the lord well i I think
1: the main most important thing about quantum theory is it tells us that nature is probabilistic that there's there's no rigid determinism Mm. you can't predict things exactly um and there's a kind of inherent freedom, right, even at the most fundamental in the most fundamental particles of matter.
0: I there's think an the inherent stuff, freedom. Yes. Do you mean that just because the behaviour of particles and waves apparently altering under observation and under observation?
1: No, that If if you measure the the take a single photon going through a double slit, for example, you can't predict which way where it'll end up which bit of the film that you're filming it with, it'll land on. But if you send thousands of single photons one after another, you get a kind of average pattern, which is like a, a wave pattern. Um, so it follows a kind of probability distribution, but you can't predict any individual one. If you've got a radioactive uranium atom, you, can't, you can say what its half-life is. If you've got millions of them. By how many years it'll be before half of them have decayed. But this individual atom, you can't tell if it's going to decay in a million years or in the next second. There's nothing that enables you to say that. So there's an inherent freedom at the very foundation of matter. And what chaos theory has shown is that even bigger things like the weather systems have a kind of inherent indeterminism or freedom. And the same is true of the way the nerve cells in our brain work, and many of them are on a knife edge. They could go one way or another. So all through nature, there's this kind of indeterminism. Um, that means there's a kind of inherent freedom at all levels in nature. There's certain f- strong habits, but when you get things that are changing and they're on cusp points, uh, there's, there's this kind of indeterminism. Now, I don't think the observer stuff in quantum... Th- I think it's overrated, The you know, the consciousness really? thing. Well, basically what it says is that the kind of observation you make in quantum theory depends on what you're observing. In other words, the observations depend on the observer. But the philosopher Schopenhauer pointed out exactly that in around 1800. You know, the whole of science, he said, all observations depend on observers. It's not as if nature's out there just sort of passively observing itself. When we observe nature... We come to it with our frameworks of thought, preconceptions, measuring apparatus, etc. Mm. Whenever we ask a question of nature in an experiment, the answer we get depends on the question we make. So that's a perfectly general point about all science. It only came to sort of popular consciousness through quantum theory, but it's not specific to quantum theory.
0: Yes. I see. Now, what do you think, on a more practical level, the, the imposition of dogma normally protects the interests of the powerful. Is it important that much of what is regarded as a sanctioned and valorized science is corporately funded? Is that important?
1: I don't think that's important, actually, not, oh, not the most important for thing. God's sake. The dogmas of science got established before corporate funding became oh. very important. I mean, this dogmatic materialism was already well established by the late 19th century when, you know, there were a few German companies making aniline dyes and things. Don't worry about them. Early chemical companies making aspirin and stuff. But it, long before this sort of massive corporate involvement, it was an ideological movement. People like T.H. Huxley here in England um, were basic materialists and that they wanted to spread the message about materialism because they wanted to destroy the power of religion. And make scientists, as it were, the new priesthood. If you have a, a culture where you destroy the old priesthood and where science, reason and progress are your ideology and every government is now being converted to it, economic progress through science and technology, every government in the world is a dominant paradigm, then who are the priests of this new culture? Obviously the scientists. And T.H. Huxley wanted the scientists to become a kind of priestly caste, and... Um, professional scientists um, who would then be the go-to people for governments. And in many countries, there's a separation between church and state, but in no country is the separation between science and state. So I would say the power base of science is much more state than than corporations. Hmm. They've come long later.
0: What is their gospel?
1: Well, their gospel is is we'll save the world through science and technology. You know, we're the saviors of humanity. mm um, religions have screwed it up, people just fight each other, but we come along and we'll cure diseases, reduce infant mortality, provide abundant consumer goods, uh, and uh, prolong life. And many of these promises have come true, after all. It's not just ideology. It's uh, very powerful. Much less empirical.
0: Intent. What is not empirical?
1: What's not empirical is the metaphysical belief system that nature is totally mechanical, that it's all unconscious, that the laws are fixed, all these... In my book, The Science Delusion, I have these ten dogmas of science. Uh, Memories are stored in the brain, that's another one. Um, They believe that because they're materialists, everything must be matter, so all our memories must be inside our heads.
0: In some way, a memory must have a material component. It must, on some level, be measurable. Exactly. And therefore, when you die and your brain decays,
1: all your memories are wiped out. So every religion that believes in reincarnation or an afterlife or purgatory or
0: whatever... Any form of transmigration. Any
1: form of transmigration, any kind of ancestor connections or anything like that must be rubbish because memories in the brain is impossible for any aspect of them to
0: survive. It seems to me the rational conclusion of rationalism is that we are individuals, there is no meaning, therefore consume.
1: Yes, and that's why... The word materialism has two meanings. In, in science and philosophy, it means this worldview I've been talking about and we've been discussing. In ordinary, everyday language, it means people who go to shopping malls all the time and are constantly consuming things.
0: That connection is telling, don't you think?
1: I think so, yes, very much so. I think that it's not a coincidence we use the same word for both.
0: Now it's time for a quick commercial break. You know Jermaine Clement from the BBC series Flight of the Concords, which is great and we all love? Now you can listen to two seasons of his acclaimed podcast, The Mysterious Secrets of Uncle Bertie's Botanarium, on Stitcher Premium. Check it out, because I really like him. Follow the famous ship, The Jewel of the Gravy Isles, on its mission to find a plant known to be the source of all pleasure in the world, Heaven's Clover. Great concept. It sounds like no other podcast you have ever heard, with a rich, detailed sound design and original music Produced by an outstanding creative team from New Zealand, if you can imagine them. And we love New Zealand. Start listening to the mysterious secrets of Uncle Bertie's Botanarium, now with one-month free trial to Stitcher Premium. That's nice, isn't it? Go to stitcher.com forward slash premium and use the promo code BRAND, that's my surname, BRAND, in capitals, at checkout to get your free months. You'll get it for free anyway. I'm only asking you to do something for free. That's stitcher.com forward slash premium, using our... uh, Premium, I said then, not premium, which isn't a word. Yeah, use our promo code because it makes us look good. And now back to Under the Skin. Can we talk a bit about psychedelics and uh, you taking psychedelics?
1: I don't want to talk too much about it since most of them are still illegal, but... (laughs) (laughs)
0: Shall we talk about how you've never taken psychedelics? <laughs> now it's illegal and wrong to do it. Well, i tell you why. I'm very interested in Terence McKenna, and you were friends with Terence McKenna, weren't you? In fact, I've heard him talk about you on YouTube oh, yes. videos and stuff.
1: We were great friends, and in fact, we had, with our friend Ralph Abraham, who's a chaos theory mathematician at the University of California, we had about... 40 or 50 three-way trialogues, and we produced two books together, and there's about 20 or 30 of these trialogues are on my website in streaming audio, so you know, for 20 years nearly, we met every year, we spent several days just talking to each other, because that's what we most enjoyed doing and um, one of the things we were interested in was indeed psychedelics, and one is, Terence had many interests, psychedelics is what he's best known for, but he had an extraordinarily wide-ranging mind, and he was also incredibly funny. Mm. Um, Well, for me, um, just, uh, I suppose, if it's a long time ago, I can talk about it. For me, a great revelation was in about 1971, uh, when I took LSD for the first time. And everything I'd been taught about the nature of minds, I studied this stuff at Cambridge as an undergraduate, you know, nerve impulses, neurotransmitters, um, hormones affecting secondary sexual characteristics, all that kind of thing. Suddenly, in the immediacy and incredible power of this visionary experience, it, I just felt something very, very important had just been left out from this worldview. So for me, it really was what the term means psychedelic means psyche revealing, mind revealing. It revealed a ro- whole realms of mind that I had no experience of before and no one had told me about um, and opened up an interest in the nature of consciousness. So for me, it was a transformative experience. What
0: did you experience during this period a long time ago that was so transformative? Describe it, please.
1: Well... The first thing that happened was that I took it with a friend. who would only taken it once or twice before. We thought it took an hour to come on. That's what he thought.
0: So we took it's it. It's rather apposite that we can hear police sirens even now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we took it. We thought we'd have a meal while we came on. So we were in a restaurant. And it came on during in this restaurant. Food started looking distorted. The whole thing became... So I wanted to get back to my rooms in college. I was a fellow of Clare College at the time. And so uh, then suddenly this journey became a kind of, it went on forever, going through streets and uh, everything distorted. And when I got back, I thought, I must have taken a massive overdose. And I, I thought, because uh, I felt I was completely out of control. My whole ego was dissolved. I didn't know what was happening. It had come on sooner than we thought, so I thought this must be a huge overdose, I'll be insane forever, etc. In fact, I thought I must be in hell. And then neon signs saying hell that I have all around me, which proved it. Um, Then a friend, um, my friend sort of talked to me, and I sort of came to my senses, as it were, at least not really senses, but um, suddenly I felt as if I was floating up towards, I saw the light above me and I broke through like the surface of the ocean and suddenly I was in a realm of transcendent beauty Um, music turned into forms and patterns, I had the sense of connection with the one and all and everything a kind of mystical experience Mm. and I later came to know that Stan Groff and other people uh, described this as a kind of death and rebirth experience like that, going up through the darkness to the light, is like being born from the womb, coming out through the birth canal into the light. It's a kind of like a birth or rebirth experience. So for me, it was a kind of transformative moment of a whole new way of understanding consciousness and my connection with the greater consciousness.
0: Yes, the very idea that one's conscious experience can be chemically altered, that one's perceptions are not um, rigid, for me... it's it demonstrates the plasticity of reality and our relationship with reality. Terence McKenna, one of the things that fascinates me about him is the conclusions he draws from these experiences with regard to the way that power operates, the control of substances of this nature, and me as a person that's in recovery from drugs, you know, I don't take drugs, I've not taken drugs for a long time. But what I, what I personally intuit is that... There are so many vested interests in keeping behave- people behaving in an orderly manner. And if you have access to mysticism, it, one tends towards challenging structures. And like we said at the beginning of our interview, Rupert, looking at frameworks and asking simply, why? Why? Why does my life have to exist within this framework? Why must I behave in this way? Why is this convention being observed? I think it's interesting. And I, well, when you, what you said about revolutions earlier and the necessity for to challenge the idea of God because of the way that God was operating in power structures prior to the two revolutions that you mentioned used to underwrite those power structures. I can see the necessity for challenging hegemony in that form. But... The removal of God to you know, give uh, you, a professor, the full Nietzschean quote, you know, God is dead and we have killed him and there's not enough water in the world to wash the blood from our hands. The idea that when we lose God, when we lose a way of accessing and understanding the mystery, we prevent ourselves, we are prohibited from being fully human. Continually evolving and connected, we begin to regard ourselves in a material model as components that have to have a mechanical function to be valuable. We become a tool mm. of consumerism, we become either an asset or a deficit. Mm. We don't have inherent value. So, I can see the politically why these power structures are perpetuated. And even if, as you say, they existed prior to corporatization, I would say the power behind corporatization has mutated and was present mm. in some other form prior to that. And it's about the preservation of power structures mm. and always has been. And that's why it's so vehemently opposed. Whenever anyone says, hey, there's another world, their love is real, we're mm. all connected. You know, whenever that message starts to come out, people don't like it, it gets dampened down pretty quick.
1: Well, I agree. And I think that the suppression of the... the there's a reason why these revolutions occurred... And um, But what it, what it leaves, the materialist worldview where, from which God's been removed, a, a relentlessly secular society, leaves people alone, isolated in the privacy of their skulls. And, um, <laughs> uh, and is, is a world that's meaningless and depressing, and that's why depression is the endemic disease of modern societies. But that's exactly why I think that in the secular age, when many people have lost contact with traditional religions, um, spiritual practices are so important. And that's why I've, my most recent book is called Science and Spiritual Practices. Because um, the, the paradoxical thing is, the sort of ironic, that people think of science as against spirituality. But if you actually use science correctly and you use look in an open-minded way, you study spiritual practices scientifically like meditation, for example. Mm. Then it turns out uh, the evidence is overwhelming. This is very good for people. People who do it are happier, healthier, live longer. Um, you know, people have figured out which bits of the brain are changed during meditation, lowering stress levels, sleep better. Um, the scientific evidence suggests these are very these practices are very good for you. In my book, I deal with a number of other ones, like... Um, connecting with nature which is very important practice for a lot of people including me and pilgrimage there's an amazing revival of pilgrimage going on in Europe at the moment and um, I think this is probably the one that most clearly expresses um, the fact that so many people feel they're on a journey they want to go somewhere they, somewhere that connects them with something bigger than themselves is the physical journey of a pilgrimage is an expression of that search um, For teleology. Yes, there's a purpose to the, 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 the journey. And the if you're going on a pilgrimage to a holy place, then you're going to a place which holy and healing come from the same root. So you're going to a place that can have a healing effect on you.
0: Do you think then that, we live our lives extracted from these kind of principles until they are somehow scientifically verified. What you said about meditation is something that I've thought about quite a lot, that you know, mindfulness and meditation are now spoken of from a perspective of well-being, but it has been necessarily secularized. Uh, it's something that I find kind of irritating, I suppose, because meditation is... is been present uh, 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 and suggested and proposed through religious ideologies for millennia, uh, and was and these conclusions were reached not by empirical, well, perhaps by empirical means, but not by scientific means. Mm. Uh, I wonder what other notions found in theology would be similarly beneficial. I don't qu- query the need for change as in the examples that you've already given the revolutionary changes and nor do i dispute how religion has been used to support power to uh, to to uh, engine bigotry and oppression those are like but but like in my belief system uh, there is a, a a line be quick to see where religious people are right and like this mindfulness example and possibly what you're saying about pilgrimage about purpose you know when, when anecdotally my experience of the world is you know when i'm talking to people they feel lost unhappy disconnected you know like and you could arrive at these conclusions through marxist theory that, that capitalism would lead to alienation and people feeling that their only function is an economic one or a productive one you know, so you're saying that these of literally these traditional ideas such as pilgrimage is a a new way of re-engaging with aspects of our consciousness that will be neglected absolutely yes and uh, well
1: i think it's re-engaging because it's going on a journey to something that is bigger than you um you know for example every year i've been doing this i have a godson who's a teenager and you know i feel as a godfather i should do something for his birthday and and I stopped giving stuff to people because I think everyone's got too much stuff. So I give experiences. And when he was 14, I offered him, I said, my offer is a pilgrimage to Canterbury. We walk the last eight miles through fields on footpaths and woods. We go to the cathedral. We light candles at the shrine of St. Thomas. Go to Choral Evensong, which is this beautiful service, and um, have a cream tea. And come home man. on the, come home on the <laughs> high speed train, um, and I said, "Would you like to do that?" And slightly to my surprise, he said, "Yes." And we had a blissful day, and we do that every year now to different cathedrals.
0: How beautiful! How do you, uh, uh, not that you need to, other than in the context of this question, align your Anglicanism with what you're saying about morphic resonance? You know, like a very what, what people would regard as a conventional faith.
1: Well, I mean, it's not very conventional to be a Christian in modern Britain. Only about 5% of people go to church regularly now. Um, So it's definitely not the power structure and no one's in it for the money anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, morphic resonance actually fits very well, particularly in my book on science and spiritual practices. One of them I discuss is rituals. And all religions have rituals and secular cultures do as well. Go on.
0: What are some rituals of secular culture?
1: Well, the American Thanksgiving Festival, for example, it's a national ritual. Mm. Um, Rituals reenact an original, seminal moment in the history of a group. So, Jewish people, for example, reenact the Passover dinner that happened in Egypt when they fasted. So, it's a form of
0: ancestor worship and connection, and to demonstrate that we exist beyond our individual selves and are connected to our lineage. Yes, back
1: to an original event that sets the lineage in motion. Oh. And so the Christian Holy Communion is a ritual celebration of Jesus' last supper with his disciples itself, a Passover dinner. Um, so it it's a kind of ancestral connection across time. And the point about morphic resonance, it depends on similarity. Now, if you have a ritual where you use the same language, the same words, the same gestures, the same incense, the same whatever, um, you deliberately create things as similar as possible, and you set up perfect conditions for morphic resonance. Mm-hmm. So in all cultures, people believe that by doing these rituals, they connect with their ancestors who've done them before, right back to the first time it's done. And it means the individu- individuals much more than just me. I'm part of a whole long tradition that went on long before me and will go on long after me. Um, Mm. And this whole tradition, in any case, is about something bigger than us, because Jesus' Last Supper, the Passover, was about more than just those people. It was, in their own terms, an intervention of... God into history.
0: Well I like that. So my individual consciousness is just temporal but but my consciousness has existed before me and my consciousness will exist after me. My consciousness is part of a vital energy, a continual pranic flow existing through all forms, existing beyond and through time and space. Time and space themselves being just referential points from this biological organism or this species of biological organisms that would be entirely different if we had different senses. That consciousness is somehow reflecting onto the the screen of reality rules that are apparent to its own understanding and its own interaction with the external and through these rituals we can demonstrate it recreate it connect with it in a different way and see how we have existed like waves passing through time I like that but somehow stripped of mystery these things can seem like I imagine that some of our out there rather more radical uh, listeners might think you know of the whole because to me it sounds bloody delightful going for the cream tea and the pilgrimage to Canterbury It's the sort of thing I might do, actually. But like a lot of people think, I ain't doing that. I want to do ayahuasca with a flick knife by a wood. (laughs) So like, you know, so like, doesn't it seem, it seems conventional. Whilst you said it's like 5%, it seems like, I don't know, what does it seem? It doesn't seem radical. It seems, what is it, that thing that I'm feeling? It seems somehow, I don't know, safe, like it's not going to change the world. Like it's had its moment, that it's nostalgic. Is that what it is? Well,
1: I think there's an element of that connection. Well, anything that connects, I don't consider it nostalgic to connect with tradition in the past. Mm. I mean, here in Britain, for example, we have incredible cathedrals, and those were produced in the Middle Ages when virtually everybody believed that they were part of something bigger than themselves. And the whole society, I mean, three million people with ox carts and ropes and pulleys created all these incredible cathedrals, Canterbury, Durham, Wells, Salisbury, etc., Westminster Abbey, um, they thought they were part of something much, much bigger than themselves. And they're still here today, and I find them incredibly powerful. Um, I don't think it's just nostalgia. I think they have a living presence, and anyone who goes into them, um, especially if you go and listen to um, this evening service, even song, where everybody's chanted as this beautiful music, it's an extraordinarily beautiful and transforming experience. Now, I've nothing against ayahuasca, and
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I wouldn't like to say this is, it's either or. You see, for me, it's not either or. I think all these spiritual practices are part of what we can do, and there's many, many spiritual practices we can take part in, meditations, one, rituals, or another. And ayahuasca is done as a kind of ritual, as a kind of sacrament or communion, uh, where the participants, uh, especially in these psychedelic churches like Santo Daime. Um, that
0: then—that sounds good. Uh, this
1: is a Brazilian. There's a very big psychedelic church in Brazil. There's two actually. more than two, but the main ones are called Santo Daimé and União do Vegetal, which means Union of Plants. And these are churches. I, I have been. I, I suppose. I, I suppose I should add a long time ago um, to services of these churches I'm in Canada. Actually, oh, I in, getcha. Mm, they. <laughs> So the. Um, well, they
0: like these psychedelic churches. I'm fascinated. What, are they got good murals in them? Are well, no, 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 they
1: don't. No, they, they, it's not, they don't have buildings. I mean, they, well, at least they may do in Brazil, but this is sort of in a room where they rent rooms and things. So, what they're. Um, in the Santo Daime, men are all dressed in white on one side of the room, women on the other. And you, it started, to my surprise, with everyone reciting the Our Father and the Hail Mary. And. Um, And then there's a kind of communion where you all go up one after another and drink from this chalice of ayahuasca. Oh, right. And then the whole group is traveling together, and the person leading it says, you know, this isn't just personal tripping. You know, we're in this together, and we're traveling like in a boat together. And there's periods when you sing together extraordinarily beautiful songs, and then periods when everyone sits in silence and has kind of visionary experiences, in my case, The first time I did I was sort of zooming out of the earth into the cosmos, sort of through the stars. It was an astonishing experience. Um, And then you come back and there's another song and and, uh, there's a kind of very strong sense of group solidarity. Uh, But I don't see that that is, is, um, you know, I see that as a perfectly compatible with lots of other
0: religious traditions. Oh, yeah, with you sat around having your cream tea. It sounds much more radical to me. <laughs> I went to this church, Rupert, in Ladbroke Grove quite by mistake. As a matter of fact, I, like, uh, I-, I wandered in. And it was, I later discovered, Eritrean Christian folk. Mm. They had, like, uh, like a screen up the front. They were listening to pretty crazy keyboard music. Everyone else except me it was Eritrean. There was a little kid at the back in a tiny plastic chair. She was seemed to be there in some sort of administrative role. Up the front was the <laughs> pastor and a couple of other guys. It was pretty uh, intense, you know? Like, um, like, it was like a feel jesus type levels of stuff and a guy like you know everyone was going up the front and having like proper it looked to me like speaking in tongues out of body kind of experiences Mm. while i was watching this all happen from from the midst from the congregation which was only about 30 or 40 people in this church you know i was thinking how how are we gonna go home afterwards you know how are we gonna pick up our coats and our car keys and be normal again. Like after we have letting ourselves go, after we have dispensed temporarily with our identity as hello there. See, and I suppose this is what I mean, while you're having a cream tea or you're walking in a field, you're still essentially you but while you're shooting through the cosmos on Ayahuasca, you are physically experiencing that you are not just your identity as Rupert or Russell or whoever you happen to be listening to this thing right now. Watching these Eritrean people in congregation, I watched them having a group experience that was clearly transcendent, which was clearly outside the accepted social rules i thought how will this cease how will it come to cessation i went to the front myself and like the pastor did some ritual on me and where my secular mechanical conditioned mind would say that it was all brouhaha and nonsense except for when like he uh, offered me the healing the place in my stomach that he grabbed is exactly where i feel the pain when alone anxious and full of doubt the place that he grabbed that was the place where i feel the pain you know and then at the end things did resolve quite perfectly and beautifully and people just chatted afterwards and mm. went back to their jobs in these cases i'm thinking a lot of these people were cab drivers and doing pretty mm. low paid minimum paid or jobs, but they had there a communal experience mm. and, I, and uh, a, a transcendent experience. Certainly it was beyond the accepted social norms of how are you, what are you going to be doing next Wednesday? Did you see Spurs the other night? Yes. You know, like people were, and, and I feel that if you exclude that experience from your life, if your life does not include that, then what are you doing? What are you doing here? Hmm. Well, I agree. I think that
1: without that kind of experience... We lead very impoverished lives. Yes,
0: um,
1: and that's why I think, like you do, that spiritual practices and, and and awareness of that dimension are so important.
0: What should science? How can science, which you know, no one disputes that without science, no technology; without science, no medicine. All the things that you listed, you know, the experimental mm. method, absolutely vital. But is there a what do you? What would your biggest hope be for science?
1: I think first of all, going beyond these narrow dogmas that hold it back, my book, The Science Delusion in America, is called Science Set Free, and it's really the idea that if we escape from this dogmatic prison that it's in at the moment, it could become much more positive and life-affirming. And I think that if we switch from a view of nature as being dead, inanimate, and mechanical, to a view of nature as a living cosmos that's evolving with habits, and that everything in nature is being alive, Gaia, the earth, the sun, the solar system, the galaxy, plants and animals, not machines, but truly alive, we'll find ourselves in a living world, which has a kind of purpose. It's not clear what it is, but uh, we'd feel much more connected if we feel ourselves part of a living world. And then the kind of spiritual principles that give rise to that world or the creative forces that underlie it would become we'd feel they were more relevant and closer to us and we'd see God in nature and God in us. And um, uh, and I think then when that happens, our lives become much more connected, much more meaningful and much
0: happier too. Yes, that's very, very beautiful. And I can't see why that would be controversial at all to regard the world in those terms. Rupert Sheldrake, your book, I'm telling you this, but really you know it. Your book, <laughs> I'm just going to let you know. Your book, Science and Spiritual Practices, is available now. I, uh, I Thank you very much. I really enjoy talking to you. I really enjoy listening to you. I find it incredibly valuable and beautiful and to invest the world around us with love and not to feel that we are just components in a, a, a mindless and purposeless machine. For me, this is not just, oh, this cheers me up on, you know, on my road to the boneyard. No, it also feels like it has truth. When I think of nature, when I think of my experience with psychedelics, it seems to confirm that there are forces beyond that which can be understood through the limited senses, that there is information available that mm. can't be understood within the existing template. It seems to be bloody obvious, mm. as a matter of fact, and that nature does seem like an uh, 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 um, in motion a living, beautiful thing rather Mm. than a mechanical resource. But if you start looking at nature as something other than a resource, a lot of economic interests and political interests would be strongly challenged. Yes.
1: Anyway, it's a great pleasure talking (laughs) to you, Russell.
0: (laughs) Don't try and wrap it up. I'm the host of the
1: thing. Well, all right, but (laughs) I, I think you're getting signals. You're meant to be wrapping it
0: up. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Sheldrake. I want to go to a bloody cathedral with you you'd take us in all I bet wouldn't you I would yes I'd love we'd, to go with you we'd go to a cathedral we'd walk for a field and like we'd like then we'd just have a cream tea uh, and then we'd go what a cathedral which ones are the best ones Durham Canterbury well we could Wells. start with
1: Westminster Abbey which is quite spectacular and amazing really yeah and they do choral even song practically yeah, every day
0: even f- song. you mention it all the time You're like a well it's the best
1: it. it's the best way in I mean, I've, you've done this empirically, you know, what, what works for people. Um, if people are committed Christians, Holy Communion is the, the best way in. But if people are not used to that, um, then Choral Evensong is something that can include everybody. And um, it's extremely beautiful. only lasts 45 minutes. And it happens every day in all our cathedrals. Could be an and what's more, podcast. there's a website that I helped set up called choralevensong.org where you can find out when the next one is, what they're singing and what kind of choir it is.
0: I'm going to investigate what it was like for those people with ropes and pulleys and horse and cart building them cathedral. I bet it was a right ball like erecting them, dragging great stones around Norwich. Exactly, but what they
1: did has endured to this day, whereas what people do by buying things and throw away culture will only endure in rubbish heaps for, the, for centuries
0: to come. Thank you. More cathedrals, fewer less iPhones. Although you're probably not listening to this on a cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Rupert Sheldrake. Well, thank you. Thanks. Cheers. That show was sponsored by Recovery, which you can buy now on Amazon, or you can get it as an audio book, or you can buy it on your device, uh, and you can see me read most of it basically on my Facebook feed. I'm always reading out great chunks of it. I can't shut up about the damn thing. Also, come see me on my rebirth tour. We had to reschedule some dates. So I'm in Coventry, 8th of November. Leicester, 13th of November. Stoke, 14th of November. It's a great show. It's live. Fill in the survey. You'll have a wild, wild time there. I sign books in the interval. I come right out. I'm very, very available. Go to russellbrand.com for your tickets. Finally, if you like this show, please subscribe to it. And review it and get your friends listening too. Form little groups where people gather and perhaps build churches to it. Why not, are you listening to this in the future after I've passed on? Right, why not canonise me and make me a saint and a prophet? Look, all right, it's too much. Just give it five stars. You don't have to start a religion. I know how difficult that can be. I'm trying to start my own one right now. It's knackering. All right. bye then.